Hello, and welcome to Back Bay's Life Science Report. Today, my guest is Dr. Kevin Norman. Dr. Norman is a consultant here at Back Bay. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the topic of optogenetics, a topic he recently wrote about for the journal Cell and Gene and Clinical Leader. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Hi, Pete. Glad to be here. So, Kevin, your article on the commercial potential of optogenetics was recently published this month in Cell and Gene and has already gotten some good interest. So, maybe to start with, you can briefly describe optogenetics and share with our listeners what are the principles and what diseases is it currently being studied in? Yes, absolutely. So, optogenetics is a technique to control neural activity with light, which is achieved by genetically introducing light-sensitive proteins called opsins into a cell. And these opsins can be excitatory, inhibitory, which is really dependent on the charge of the ions flowing through those channels. And the, the opsins can often be in the form of light-sensitive sodium channels. So when you ch- shine light on those specific cells, sodium flows into the cell, uh, leading to depolarization and uh, an action potential allowing these neurons to send information downstream to the next neuron. So personally, during the course of graduate school, I had the opportunity to work with optogenetics in rodents um, that allowed us to optogenetically activate or inactivate specific brain regions of interest uh, to help us understand the causal role of the circuits in a variety of behaviors, including attention and social behavior. And so while optogenetics was discovered 15 years ago and is now really regularly used across the world preclinically in in rodents, zebrafish, drosophila. Uh, I read this recent Nature Medicine paper about using optogenetic therapies from the company uh, Gensite Biologic in humans, and I was not only fascinated by seeing it used in humans for the first time, but also just that it was you know effective. They had really strong preliminary results. And it really drove me to want to understand more about the optogenetic landscape and what else it could be used for. Great. So essentially, if I'm understanding this correctly, you could think about it like a gene therapy that's delivering a light sensitive protein that then does something uh, in the brain or the eye that you want it to do, correct? Yes, exactly. So you're introducing these light sensitive channels in the retinal cells um, downstream of the, the rods and cones, which typically receive light from our environment and send that information uh, downstream to bipolar cells and retinal ganglion cells before being processed in the visual areas of the brain in order to encode vision. So in essence, this therapy is kind of hijacking the typical visual vision circuitry that allows um, and allows more of an alternative route for capturing light and transmitting this information uh, in order to facilitate vision. So currently the uh, ophthalmology diseases, specifically retinitis pigmentosa or RP, is the indication that most of the current optogenetic therapies in clinical development are used for. And RP is a uh, a group of inherited retinal dystrophies that lead to the the loss of these uh, photoreceptors. And it's caused by one of uh, 71 different genes leading to this degeneration. Um, and so when those rods and cones don't work um, in their healthy 
normal functioning way of receiving this light and sending information downstream, it ultimately leads to uh, loss of peripheral vision and, and later blindness. Okay. Okay. So there's been a, a, a good deal of attention here in the field recently. And, and what surprised you most as you uh, dove into the field when developing this article? Yeah, so I think really the, the biggest surprise that it was quickly apparent that there was really a ton of interest in this field um, as Genocide is one of uh, four companies with currently with optogenetic therapies and clinical development. And while they're all currently indicated for RP, they do differentiate based on uh, a number of factors, including the, the type of neurons that they're targeting to express their optogenetic uh, opsin and uh, whether or not they're a, a drug-device combination. Uh, so kind of just to run us through some of the more exciting results from these companies. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Gensite's strategy combines gene therapy to express opsins in these retinal ganglion cells, uh, and they also use light-stimulating goggles in combination. And the goggles are essential because the cells that express these optogenetic proteins are less sensitive than normal photoreceptors in the rods and cones of, uh, you know, normal, healthy um, individuals. So under regular kind of daylight conditions, it's unlikely to be possible uh, for these artificial photoreceptors that are less sensitive to capture light from our environment and then transmit that uh, information downstream. And so these goggles encode the visual scene uh, in our environment and take that and kind of generate a strong, a high intensity with a specific wavelength into the eye of uh, the individuals wearing the goggles to stimulate the optogenetic proteins in a stronger way, in a stronger fashion. And another major player is Nanoscope Therapeutics, and they actually just finished enrolling uh, all of their participants in the, the phase two clinical testing of their gene therapy. And they differentiate from Gensite because they're planning, they're targeting uh, bipolar cells rather than the, the retinal ganglion cells targeted by Gensite. And they also uh, don't require the use of these, uh, these goggles, and which is really a, a value add for any patient that's interested in um, using these optogenetic therapies. Okay. And, and what about, you know, how big pharma... Uh, and biotech and or VCs have been viewing this space and what have their activities been within the realm of optogenetics? Great, great point there. You know, so, you know, there was honestly a time where applying optogenetics in humans was really a pipe dream and could never be used outside of a mouse. But it's exciting to see that it's not really just the, the small fish going after optogenetic therapies as big pharma is investing in investing in the space and scooping up some of these small companies to add to their ophthalmology portfolios. Novartis has definitely been the most active in the space as they acquired Fadir Bio for $150 million up front and uh, almost triple that if milestones are met. And they also acquired Arctos Medical uh, about six months ago to add to their ophthalmology portfolio. So when, you know, what it really comes down to is that uh, from a commercial perspective right now, there's a handful of companies in the space 
and that they're not really beyond phase two clinical testing. So there's plenty of opportunity for jockeying and differentiating kind of positioning in this optogenic space right now. And the, the VC venture capital companies are definitely interested as they've uh, nearly invested $100 million in optogenetic uh, therapies over the last five years, in addition to uh, using optogenetics as a tool for uh, exploring neurocircuits that could um, help identify kind of novel, ther- novel targets for uh, future therapies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So obviously a lot of promise and some, you know, early acquisitions by a big player in the space and VC starting to sniff around and put some money on the table with these companies. But, you know, where do you see some of the challenges and issues in optogenetics currently? So I think the the main factor, the main technical challenge right now would be the, the sensitivity of the optogenetic receptors and whether or not these gog- light-simulating goggles need to be included uh, with the therapy. Because uh, there's, there's a number of options currently available in the optogenetic toolkit. Um, and the, the reason why Crimson is specifically being used as the ops in these therapies is because it has really fast kinetics and can uh, respond quickly to light and shut off immediately when light is not present. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see if there's any next generation options which may have faster kinetics as well as uh, options that are more sensitive and do not require uh, the use of these goggles. Another kind of main technical challenge is which type of cells that these uh, options should be expressed in. Right now we see two approaches, whether it be uh, expressed in the retinal ganglion cells or upstream in bipolar cells. And it's really gonna be interesting to see if which therapy, which approach ends up being more successful and whether new ther- new companies with uh, kind of novel targets emerge in the space. Uh, I think another kind of major question is what the functional endpoints of some of these trials are. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the current testing uh, is looking at it, the ability of the uh, the patients to to reach, perceive, and, and grasp at items on a table in front of them. But the big question is if that's actually going to impact their quality of life. And from a biological perspective, I think one of the major challenges is how well can optogenetic therapies completely replace the natural circuitry of a vision that we just know is really complex. Um, there's these amacrine cells and horizontal cells that function to, to, to kind of regulate and fine-tune a lot of the, the retinal sing- signaling. And, it, and by stimulating the retinal ganglion cells or the bipolar cells, it's kind of uncertain how these neurons are impacted and whether they allow for the same fine-tuning that would, would na- occur naturally. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I'm uh, learning something about uh, neural circuitry and photoreceptors because I only think of rods and cones and that's about it. So um, I guess I don't really appreciate or I've forgotten, you know, molecular biology 101 uh, that there's so many other cells at at play here, um, you know, in, in visual perception. So 
obviously could spend a, a lot of time diving in that, but maybe turning more to the commercial angle here for these therapies, you know, what are some of the considerations that you landed on in the piece you wrote? Yeah, so the most exciting commercial opportunity for optogenetics revolves around its use as a, a one-and-done therapy rather than some of these specific gene therapies available. So Spark Therapeutics, which was acquired by Roche, has the gene replacement therapy Luxterna, which is the only FDA-approved therapy for early-onset uh, RP, which is caused by the mutation of one specific gene, RP65. And so Luxerna, it's been really successful so far, and it's definitely improved the lives of many people suffering with RP. But in its major drawback is the fact that it's only effective in RP patients with this specific recessive mutation, which only affects 2% of RP patients. And that really leaves a massive unmet need for the vast majority of patients with RP. And so what optogenetics what makes optogenetics so attractive is that it has the potential to be kind of a one-and-done therapy that can be used broadly across all of these RP patients. And that would be regardless of their mutation and, uh, as a result, provides a much larger addressable population that uh, optogenetics could be used for. Yeah, and that's a, that's a pretty interesting sort of concept that you see in in gene therapies and gene editing now that, you know, are there approaches or are there products that you can develop for monogenic diseases um, that replace a pathway regardless of any one specific uh, mutation or set of mutations within a, a more sort of heterogeneous patient uh, population from a, from a genetic standpoint. Exactly. And, you know, with a larger patient population, there's definitely a, a larger commercial opportunity. And you look at Luxterna, which has reached about or anticipated to reach around $160 million in peak annual revenue. And that only impacts 2% of the RP population. So yeah. there's definitely a massive commercial opportunity for a, a one and done RP therapy. Yeah. And so, and I, I guess the other consideration is, you know, is this actually expected to be, you know, one and done with its final product profile as it progresses through clinical trials, right? Because as we've seen with a few gene therapies, there are very few sort of truly, um, you know, one dose, one treatment uh, gene replacement therapy. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And is this approach going to be any different than what we've seen so based on your observations before and, you know, some of the considerations you, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation here is that there's going to be sort of a, a hardware component as well with these therapies with, with, with a goggle. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So about half of the therapies currently in development require the use of these, of these light-stimulating goggles. And that would require the patients to wear the goggles whenever they want. Um, enhanced vision, uh, which is definitely likely to impact patient satisfaction. Maybe they could remove it once they've um, gone home or more in a comfortable environment, but uh, in order for this therapy to actually work, the goggles must be on. Interesting. So that, you know, that sort of complicates things from a drug device 
combination in a commercialization perspective, right? Is this something the patient is going to be able to have at their home? If so, how are they going to pay for it? Is it only delivered, you know, in the doctor's office? How does the, you know, ophthalmologist uh, pay for it? And how does that impact, you know, the, the efficacy of the therapy if they, you know, have to go in to sort of wear the goggles? And so that, that does prevent present some commercial challenges in the context of a drug device combination as it sort of complicates the regulatory path as well, depending on how unique or specific these goggles are. Certainly the reimbursement angle is any time you begin to introduce a, you know, capital equipment or hardware component uh, for a drug, as well as just, you know, for a lot of these companies, the development capabilities right are very different from a device than they are for a for a pharmaceutical so um you know and and some of these considerations aren't just unique to optogenetics but certainly other areas in biotech and pharma where you have a a drug and a a novel device or a novel drug and an established device so um but that is a a completely different topic for another podcast so um, so maybe you can talk, you know, a, a little bit more specifically on the issue of, of, of pricing and, and competition, uh, and, and what you found there. Yeah. So in terms of pricing this, as it's a gene, as optogenetic therapies are a gene therapy, it's definitely likely to have a price, a high price tag associated with it. Uh, we start, it's best to kind of start to look at the cost of Luxterna, which is, $800,000 for a one-time treatment for both eyes. And you know, for a few of these companies, as I mentioned, they also include these light stimulating goggles. So there's some questions over whether or not those goggles would need uh, have repair costs associated with them, or they might not, uh, you know, they might only last a, a certain amount of time. In addition, you know, there's some questions regarding the, how long the optogenetic therapy would last because right now it's really only tested up to a, a year after uh, after it's been administered into the eye. So, you know, there may be recurring costs associated if multiple uh, in eye injections are needed. And in terms of cover, uh, payer coverage, uh, it's important to kind of look at what the, what the endpoints are used for these trials. Um, and benchmark them against what other ophthalmology treatments that are covered are used used for endpoints. And so Luxterna's pivotal trials use actually a, a different endpoint, which is was a, a multi-luminescence mobility testing. And that's actually different from those being used in some of the clinical trials for optogenetic therapies. So it's important to consider kind of how the endpoints are considered uh, by key opinion leaders and and payers and how it would impact uh, coverage or clinical uptake. Okay, great. So maybe thinking uh, beyond ophthalmology, you know, in your piece, you sort of highlighted some of the areas people are interested in and some of the early preclinical data of sort of using this uh, technology outside of the eye. So maybe you can sort of walk us through where the state of play is and what the future holds beyond um, ophthalmology for optogenetics. 
So I think that optogenetic therapies has great promise in some larger disease areas like oncology, cardiovascular disease, or pain. There's been some exciting preclinical research about using optogenetics as a uh, solution to address some of the key problems limiting the use of CAR-T therapy uh, in cancer treatment, which seems like a really exciting area for optogenetics to move into. Uh, basically, the problem is that some of these CAR-T therapies for the use in solid tumors uh, or other hematological malignancy is really limited due to some to some safety concerns due to the lack of uh, spatial control of the of the uh, anti-CD19 activity, leading to some uh, immunological responses like cytokine release syndrome and uh, the damage of healthy B cell lymphocytes. So what some researchers did was engineer a light switchable car that basically is a car split into two different components, which dimerize in the presence of light. So T cell activation um, has very sp spatial temporal control because it will only activate where you shine that light. Uh, so for a sol solid tumor, you could uh, express the, this light switchable CAR-T uh, globally, but then expose a, a light source right at the site of that tumor to only have this CAR-T activity directly at that site to avoid any off-target effects that could lead to um, some, some major side effects and safety concerns. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Kevin. This was really interesting. It's always uh, uh, cool to to see when you know some of the research you you've worked on um, sort of begins to see uh, the light, so to speak. No pun intended. From a, a investment and uh, clinical development and commercialization standpoint. Absolutely glad to be on the podcast and talk about it. So, thanks again for joining us, everyone. If you have any questions about the biopharma, medtech space, partnering, licensing, strategic development questions, or more, head over to the podcast page on our website and submit questions, as we'll be beginning a series on the podcast answering questions that are submitted by our clients or interested parties through the website. You can do so at www.bblsa.com slash podcasts. That's bblsa.com backslash podcasts. And your questions may be the topic of an upcoming podcast. And we look forward to hearing you. Thanks again for joining us on Back Bay's Life Science Report. Back Bay's Life Science Report.